so forth. Judges chapter 13, Brother Tim, you come hobble up here and teach us. Did you catch that? Most of us have a spare tire in the trunk. He has a spare leg. Who else can say stuff like that? I love that. Uh, Maybe Warren. Okay, that's correct. I apologize. There are two of you. Uh, Last week, we did finish up Judges chapter 12. We covered the the three uh, minor judges, if you will. And again, they're minor, not because of what they did, but because of just the sheer amount of information we have on them. Uh, There was Ibzan in uh, verses uh, 8 through 10 of Judges chapter 12, Elon in verses 11 and 12, and Abdon in 13 through 15 to finish out chapter 12. We kind of already covered them. And we jumped into chapter 13 here, and we're going to restart a little bit because we really only got through about two verses or so last week, so we're going to reread those. Look at Judges chapter 13, verse number one, and the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. So they had, the Israelites had Ehud who delivered them, and then they had, again, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. Between those four judges combined, they had about 32 years of pretty successive peace. Because there's no indication in scripture that there was any backsliding during that time. They're they're all listed in direct chronological order there. So we have to assume that they all kind of came together. Are we okay there? So about 32 years of peace. And as soon as Abdon dies off the scene, they go right back to doing what they wanted to do. What's the one thing that we've seen so far that every time the judge dies off and the Bible says that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. What's the one major sin that they kept going back to over and over and over again? Baal worship or idolatry. In some instances, it was Baal plus a whole bunch of other gods. Uh, we, we recognized that earlier on, and I believe it was chapter 9 or 10. They had added five, six, seven other gods in addition to Baal, trying to cover all of their bases. So instead of worshiping the one true God that has all of the power and all of the knowledge and all of the ability, they're like, hey, let's add in all of these. Anybody here ever like studied Hinduism in any way, just read up on it a little bit? There are over 300 million gods and growing. There are almost as many gods in Hinduism as there are Americans. So maybe we're a god over there. I don't know. It'd be a weird thing to worship Tim. Please don't, okay? I won't answer you with anything other than sarcasm and maybe a hit to the face. That's all you're going to get, okay? But they have all of these gods. Do you know why they need that many gods? Because none of them work. And they're trying to find a God for every little aspect of their lives where something's lacking. You do realize that's one of the amazing attributes of God is he's all sufficient. By the way, you and I genuinely, we can say, yeah, that's great. Amen. We can't wrap our brain around that. We really can't. It's like trying to wrap your brain around how long infinity is. We're given eternal life. Does anybody actually understand what that's going to mean? No, because we haven't been there yet. And that's kind of crazy. And God has the ability to be all sufficient, not just for me, but for every person in this room and every person in the entire world throughout all of history, past, present, and future simultaneously. That's mind-blowing. And that's why Israel, they, they, it kind of messes with our heads a little bit. Why would you? We're reading this in retrospect, 36, 3,700 years later. And we're like, how dumb are you people? But every time we have a problem, 
is God the first person we go to or do we go check our bank account and figure out how we're gonna work this out and we go through and stress for days and days and sometimes weeks, how I'm gonna do this, maybe I can pick up extra shifts, maybe I can do this, what if I sell that? Instead of God, can you help me? We do the same thing, we just don't have little physical idols that we worship, same concept. Israel's done this again and now they're in the hands of the Philistines, which by the way, are their next door neighbors. If you look at where Israel is located, some of your Bibles might have a map and some of that'll list that. Right next to where Israel's at, there's a little strip of land right along the coastline where the Philistines lived. For the most part, the Philistine culture was a seafaring group of people, which is why their chief God, does anybody know the Philistines' chief God? His name was Dagon. He's actually in all of history, he's the first recorded version of a mermaid. Bottom half was a fish, upper half was a man, okay? Partially because they were all fishermen, okay? They were also notorious, like, naval warriors. These guys were, they were rough and tough. This is where Goliath comes from later on in history. These were big, strong, seafaring men that were also great warriors. They're in captivity here for 40 years. And look at verses 2 and 3. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. So this lady is just out and about. We're not entirely sure what she was doing in this particular moment, but this angel of the Lord shows up and his initial greeting was, Hey, you, lady with no kids, you have no kids, but you will have a kid. That's a really odd way of saying hello. By the way, read through your Bible. When God introduces himself to people, it's not typically a normal fashion. You realize that the first time Jesus met Peter, he gave him a new name. The first interaction we have with the Lord Jesus and Peter, he gave him a new name. Before he did any other recorded terms, I'm going to call you something else. That's an odd thing to do. But he's God. And God knew where Peter was going to end up. And he can do whatever he wants. And he's calling this out right here, but look at verses four and five. So this angel of the Lord, you're no kids, but you're gonna have one. You're gonna, in fact, he goes into great detail. You're gonna have a son, which in Jewish culture was a massive thing because if husband passed off the scene, son is gonna be what's taking care of you. You also realize throughout all of the Jewish culture, they had the thought in the back of their head that the son that's born could be the Messiah, the one that they were hoping for. So that was a big deal. Look at verse four and five. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. This is right where we left off last week. The angel tells Mrs. Manoah, her name's never listed in scripture, that you need to follow the Nazarite vow your entire pregnancy. So that's no wine, no strong drink, and the Bible kind of stops it, eat not any unclean thing. And then it gives us an indication in verse five that the child should be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And we talked about that. Does anybody, anybody remember the other person that is very, there's at least one, possibly two other people in scripture that might've been Nazarites their entire life. Does anybody remember the other name I gave you last week? You're fired. It was Samuel. 
Samuel was actually, the Bible specifically states that Hannah said he would drink no strong drink or any wine for his life, and he was dedicated to the Lord. She literally gave him back to God. There is a lot of indication there that Samuel may have been a Nazarite for his entire lifetime. If you would turn with me, this is genuinely where we ended last week. Numbers chapter 6. We got about halfway through the, the actual scriptural information here on a Nazarite vow, and I want to finish that up this week because it's interesting. Right here so far, we're given very limited information. No wine or strong drink and eat not any unclean thing. And then in verse 5, it says, no razor shall come on his head. Okay? So we've got very limited information so far from judges on what a Nazarite is supposed to do. But the angel of the Lord is banking on the fact that these people have access to scripture on what a Nazarite is. That's why he calls it out specifically, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. He's telling Mrs. Manoah here, this is exactly what you need to do. If she doesn't know what a Nazarite is, she can go to the priest and what do I need to do to follow a Nazarite vow? He's giving her specific, explicit instructions. Are we okay so far? This is basically God's way of giving Mrs. Manoah MapQuest directions on how to raise her kid. By the way, God gave us MapQuest level directions on how to raise our kids. But we don't follow it a lot of times. Why? Well, you know, it's a little hard. I'm sorry, princess, that's rough for you, okay? I was talking to the guys there. Uh, Numbers chapter 6, look at verse 1. We're going to just reread a little bit here. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, when either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. So we're given an indication in verse 2 that this is a voluntary thing. Somebody is coming in and I'm going to vow a vow of a Nazarite. And then in, starting in verse 3, God starts to give the details of what that includes. I gave you some homework last week. Was anybody able to find an answer from the Bible on how long a Nazarite vow lasted? Anybody? Did anybody try? Sir? Life, that, that is a very good, specifically generic question, answer. I like that. That was good. It could be lifelong, like we're seeing about Samson. The Bible specifically says, shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. There's no end date given on that. The other is a specific designated time. The Bible doesn't tell us what that specific designated time is. So somebody could make a Nazarite vow for a week, for 30 days, for six months, for a year. It was all determined by the person making that vow. Anybody here ever done a fast before? Fast for a day, for three, for a week. Who determines how long you fast? You do. Same concept goes here. Again, I've referred to this the last couple weeks. When we're studying Jewish history, the Jewish historians do need, we need to take some account most Jewish historians and rabbis, the men that study and teach this, believe that the typical Nazarite vow was about 30 days long, typically, okay? Now, this is different from a fast. They're not giving up food for 30 days. You're going to be in pretty rough shape if you give up food for 30 days. They're going on an extremely limited diet, though, 
okay? And the Bible gives us some indication of that. No wine or strong drink. This is actually, and, and the Bible goes into detail separating this out. There are those that have, have determined that the word wine and strong drink are basically synonymous. They're clearly not here. Because then, then it goes into all kinds of de, uh, detail. Drink no vinegar, or shall drink no vinegar of wine, nor vinegar of strong drink. Vinegar is overspoiled alcohol, okay? So it's going into all kinds of detail. And then we're given the idea, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes. That's again another type of strong drink, nor eat moist grapes or dried. So this gives us the indication, this includes fresh grape juice and any form of alcohol. Are we good? By the way, when the Bible says to abstain from alcohol, it tells us to not even look at it. Why does it tell us to not even look at it? In case we might be tempted. Can I be honest with you? That's never been a temptation for me. It's not. It has not been an issue for me. There are others in this room that got saved after having had issues with alcoholism or whatever. And just seeing the ad for it can mess you up. Did you know, by the way, it, it legally, you're not, they're, uh, alcohol companies in the United States are not allowed to ever show somebody drinking alcohol in an ad because the visual is so strong that when they did allow it in the 70s and 80s, it encouraged teen drinking to such an extreme level that it caused massive damage. So they outlawed the actual showing of somebody consuming alcohol in an advertisement. God knew that thousands of years before the FDA figured it out. Just throwing that out there, okay? Verse four, all the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree. This is, I, I mentioned this last week. Again, a lot of Jewish rabbis and Jewish historians take this as to mean anything that grows on a vine. The Bible here is not directly specific as to say that this would include only grapes because it uses the term kernels even to the husk. That's a different term than we would use for grapes. So a lot of the, a lot of, again, a lot of Jewish rabbis would indicate that for most people, they were just staying away from anything that possibly grew in a vine. Things like squash, watermelon, tomatoes. Why? Because just in case God maybe included them, we're going to stay away from all of them. By the way, is that a pretty logical thought right there? Yes. Yes, it is. So that... I'm not going to read into that any further. Verse 5, all the days of his vow, of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled, in the which he separateth himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. This right here gives us an indication that for the most part, this was not a short-term vow. You and I pray and fast because we need God to give us an answer and we're just in a desperate level of, okay, I'm willing to give up my necessary food to communicate with you, Lord, because I need an answer. Most of us, though, we get into day three and we're dying. You make it to day seven and, and, and you're just basically a zombie trying to function. By the way, sometimes God wants us to be that because that's when we're at our most susceptible and he'll actually be able to talk to us because we're less distracted because whatever. The indication here, though, is if you're letting your hair grow out and that's a physical sign that you've taken a Nazarite vow, this had to be somewhat long-term. Does that make sense? That's why, again, the base number for a lot of these is given at around 30 days. 30 days, your hair is going to be noticeably longer than it was. I have a relatively short haircut. If I go 30 days without a haircut, it's going to be longer than it is right now. Are we Okay. Uh, some of you remember about five or six years ago, I decided to grow my beard out and looked completely homeless for the better part of a year. 
you go on a Nazarite vow for a year, you're going to look different than when you started. By the way, the closer you get to God, you'll look different than when you started. That's what he's asking for. Because you realize he's repeated the phrase here. Okay, look at verse 2. Separate themselves unto the Lord. And it keeps going over and over again. Verse, uh, verse 5 again. Separateth himself unto the Lord. There, we're pull, the Nazarite vow is the idea of pulling away from some physical things to draw closer to the Lord. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. You do realize within some reason, we don't have to follow all these details. We're all called to a level of Nazarite vow. We should look different. We should act different. We should abstain from certain things. Why? Because that's a sign that we're a Christian. It got real quiet there. Cool. All the days that he separated himself unto the Lord. Again, repeating in verse 6. He shall come at no dead body. Can't touch anything dead. By the way, the Bible's kind of generic there. At no dead body. It doesn't say no dead person. It says no dead body. Nothing. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister, when they die because the consecration of his God is upon his head. Can't even go to a family funeral. Again, giving us the indication that the Nazarite vow was not a short-term vow. Okay? You make a Nazarite vow and you're like, I'm going to give God three days and separate myself. The odds are in your favor that you're not going to come in contact with a dead body. You make a Nazarite vow for a year, not so much. Okay? So we've got this idea, and this keeps going actually. This detail starting here in verse 6 keeps going. Look at verse 8. All the days of his separation is holy unto the Lord. And if any man die very suddenly by him... And he hath defiled the head of his consecration. Then he shall shave his head in the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day shall he shave it. I want to pause here and I'm giving you an ounce of bishology. Because this, this, this verse 9 is kind of unique. He's given all these indications. And the way I'm reading this, and again, bishology means I'm reading into things here. If any man die very suddenly by him... Could you imagine here, because the Lord's speaking unto Moses, maybe Moses paused, hey, what if somebody accidentally dies nearby? Because Moses may have been asking a logical question, or God is smarter than all of us. He may have actually read Moses' mind and like, I got you, buddy. What happens if an accident happens? God plans everything out. He knows what's going to happen. He was making sure that everything was set in place. And here's the thing. When somebody died accidentally, you started over. Your Nazarite vow ended, you shaved your head, which was a signification of the end of your vow. And look at verse 10, and on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtles or two young pigeons to the priest, to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. The priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make an atonement for him, uh, for that he sinned by the dead and shall hallow his head the same day. So he's actually got to offer a sin offering because he broke his vow to God. You and I make promises to God all the time that we don't keep. God cares about those. Here, you break it by accident and you were required to offer a sin offering for atonement. Did the person in the Nazarite vow actually commit the sin? No. Somebody happened to die nearby and they were there and somehow touched it. And you, it's still, even if you accidentally break a promise to God, he cares about that. We as 
21st century Christians, I'm a second generation Christian. My group, those of us that have grown up in church, we treat that way more flippantly than most. Come to the altar, make a promise to God. Two hours later, we've already broken that. And it's just like, it just rolls off our back and we'll do it again. 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 And it doesn't matter to us. God takes those seriously. Why? If you make a promise to somebody and keep breaking it over and over and over and over again, are they going to trust you? And we wonder why we're struggling. God can't trust us with anything because we can't keep basic promises to him. Just a thought here. Just a thought. Look at verse 12 again. And he shall consecrate unto the Lord the days of his separation, shall bring a lamb of the first year for a trespass offering. But the days that were before shall be lost because his separation was defiled. So he, that, that indication there in verse 12 is whatever he had done before doesn't count towards the days he had promised God. He's got to start over. Even if it was an accident, you got to start over. Verse 13, and this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and he shall offer his offering unto the Lord, one he lamb of the first year without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb of the first year without blemish for a sin offering, and one ram without blemish for peace offerings, and a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mingled with oil, and wafers of unleavened bread anointed with oil, and their meat offering, and their drink offerings. And let's pause for a moment. So whenever your Nazarite vow is fulfilled, that's in verse 13, it, the Bible gets very specific. He shall be brought unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. This ended very, very publicly. Very publicly. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, if you go to fast or you go to pray, are you supposed to announce that to everybody? One of the most embarrassing things that have ever happened to me as an adult is I took a special speaker out to eat when I was in college. I was tasked with taking this guy out to dinner. He stood on his chair and announced to the restaurant that he was praying for dinner. I've been in church a long time, and I want to see people saved, but can I tell you, that didn't draw anybody closer to the Lord. That was annoying. I'm sitting there like, I'm paying for his dinner, but I, um, I don't know this guy. I don't want him. That's not what God asked us to do. In fact, the Bible specifically tells us to do it in secret, doesn't it? This, though, you got to imagine, relatively lengthy vow. The hair's grown out. It's been untrimmed. You're probably going to look different due to dietary changes. The ending of this is very public. The way the Jewish culture did things is different than what God asked you and I to do things. Are we okay with that? Do you, you, we do understand that, correct? So this ends very publicly. And here's, here's where I want to get you just a second. The Nazarite vow ends very expensively. It starts off simply, I'm going to make a vow unto the Lord... But you have to imagine the priest had to be walking these people through. You realize what this is going to cost you. You're going to stand out physically. You're going to look different. For some people, that's it. I can't do that. I'm done. You're going to have to eat different. For others, that's going to cut them out. And you realize how much this is physically going to cost you at the end. Look at it again. Verses 14 and 15 is all 
This is a gigantic list of all the items that have to be brought on the day that you finish your Nazarite vow. One he lamb, one ewe lamb, one ram, a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mingled with oil, wafers of unleavened bread, uh, anointed with oil, and a meat offering, and a drink offering. Guys, this is, this is like a giant shopping cart full of stuff and animals that you have to bring on the day that you end your offering. You had to count the cost before you made this vow. Last Sunday, we heard, pick up our cross and follow me. We have to count that cost. Guys, you do realize for everything that's said in the New Testament, there's almost always an Old Testament example. The Nazarite vow is the Old Testament example of what a Christian is supposed to do. Separate ourselves from the world and separate ourselves to God. It's literally an Old Testament example of what a Christian is supposed to be. And it's not quite done yet. Look at verse 16. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord, and he shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord, and with a basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall also uh, shall offer also his meat offering and his drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave the head of his separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall take the hair of the head of his separation and put it in the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. So there's specific timing going on here. He's offering his thing. The priest goes through, uh, kills the animals, puts those on the sacrifice. Those are burning. And while they are burning, he shaves his head, collects all of this. By the way, it's using he here because that's the generic term for a person. The Bible does say back in verse 2 that this is a man or a woman. The lady's got to shave her head when this is done. So you do realize, though, for her... The growing out the hair isn't going to be a difference during the actual vow like it is for a man. For a guy, if I grow my hair out for an entire year, I'm going to look a lot different than I do right now. We okay? For a lady, you grow your hair out for a year, it just looks like your hair's longer. So for the lady, the end is where the physical difference comes in. We okay? That's going to be, it got, God's, God's making sure everybody's treated equally on this one. Shave their head, and that gets thrown in the fire under the sacrifice while it's currently burning. So there's kind of a timeline of specific things that have to happen here. And the priest shall take the sodden shoulder of the ram and one unleavened cake out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and shall put them in the hands of the Nazarite after the hair of his separation is shaven. So after he shaved, part of this sacrifice, including some of the cakes, some of the meat, is put in his hands and the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. This is holy for the priest with the wave uh, breast and heave shoulder. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. So this wave offering, this is kind of an odd one. You have to read through different parts of the Old Testament. These were just basically very public symbols of what you've done. We use baptism for the same concept. Very public symbol. I've asked God, Jesus into my heart. I believe I am saved. I'm going to get baptized. That's kind of the same concept. Are we okay, a wave offering was just a very open public thing. And again, this is all happening at the tabernacle of the congregation at the door. This is in front of everybody. If you look at how the, the Jewish tabernacle was set up, especially during the time of Moses, that was dead center where everybody else was. So if you chose to make a Nazarite vow, the way that ended, everybody saw in the immediate circle, 
and word spreads everywhere. Oh, there's a Nazarite that's coming today. Hey, did you see that that Nazarite guy finished his vow yesterday? Because everybody's going to talk about that. Why? Because that would have been fairly unique. You do realize through scripture, outside of Samson and Samuel, there are no other people listed in your Bible as directly taking a Nazarite vow by choice. Not one. Why did God choose to give us this information then? Again, my personal thought is he's giving us an Old Testament example of what a Christian's supposed to be. There's some things we are supposed to avoid. Some amazing things we're supposed to avoid. There are also a lot of things we're supposed to add on to our lives. Why? Because we're separating ourselves unto the Lord. So what are you doing with that? Are we avoiding the things we're supposed to avoid? And I don't have to go into nitty gritty detail about the things you need to avoid. You know. How do you know if Jesus is actually inside you every time you are anywhere near the stuff that you're supposed to avoid? You feel it. The Holy Spirit will tell you, that's not my job, that's God's job. But you'll know. You'll know. You got that Jiminy Cricket thing going on. That's called the Holy Spirit. And he's telling you, hey, 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 nah, uh Don't be an idiot here. If you choose to still be an idiot, you just prove that maybe you're not as good of a Christian as you might think you are. I'm not going to determine your level of Christianity, and you can't determine why. Mine, why? Because you can't see my heart, and I can't see yours, but God knows. God knows if you're going to break your promise. God knows if you're going to break your vow. And according to this, we've already discussed this, God takes vows and promises extremely seriously. And he makes us start over. I promised God I'm going to read my Bible every day, and you failed on it. Well, what do you do tomorrow? You start over. I promised God I'm not going to look at those types of websites anymore, and you failed. What do you do? You set some things in place to remove them, number one, and you start over. Just man falleth seven times, and you're going to fail. Congratulations, that is the main condition of the human being. We are abject failures at all things, but I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. You will fall apart. You will fail. You will break your promises to people and to God. Start over. And if you're sitting here today and you're like, I've already broken too many promises, start over. Today's a new day. Tomorrow's a new. You don't know when those days run out. So start over and keep them as long as you can. We good? Let's go back to Judges 13. Let's go back here. Again, verse 4. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not strong wine, nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now that we have a little bit more context, and we know a little bit more about what a Nazarite really is, you realize that God is giving Manoah and his wife way more specific instructions on how to raise their kid than he ever gave us. How many of you got instructions, by the way, when you, when you had your kids? Any, anybody? I, I started with twins. Most of you started with one. I don't know how that works. Everybody asks, how'd you handle twins? I, it, poorly? I, I don't know. Lack of sleep? 800 diapers a month for four months? I, I don't know. Poop everywhere? It was terrible. We didn't sleep. We were, I don't know. 
Then we got to Molly, and it's just been loud ever since. And then we got to Ellie, and it's really gross. I mean, it's just I, every kid is different, and they don't come with instructions. And everything you think worked with the last one doesn't work with this one. And then there's one that doesn't have a clue what's going on with any portion of life. I have no idea. Do you realize that the Manoas, for lack of a better term, haven't had kids? And we're given some indication here. If she's listed as being barren, they've probably been married for a while. And all of a sudden, they're going to have a kid. And God's like, by the way, I'm going to make things more difficult because his diet's going to be psycho. Yay. You do realize that. And by God telling them specifically here, child should be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. Okay, I have a little girl. I I don't have any boys. Didn't need any boys because I have Ellie. Ellie is probably grosser than most boys you have ever raised. She is just an amazingly nasty human being. I caught her picking something blue off of her nose yesterday at dinner and eating it. I don't know what it was. I don't know how long it had been there, but apparently it tasted good. So, hey, again, I I didn't need a boy because I got her. How many of you have had kids that have randomly touched or eaten things they should not have done? I watched Tommy in dad's office this morning pick something off his foot and eat it, even though me and Anna both said, ew, no, don't do that. He still did, with a smile on his face. Boys are gross. Have you ever seen a little boy near roadkill? Poke, 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 poke. How do you get a little boy to avoid all dead things his entire life? You ever thought about that for a split second? All dead things his entire young life. He can't eat anything unclean. Have you ever read the list of unclean things the Jews had? It's way longer than the clean things. If my little girl will eat blue crust stuff off her nose, I'm pretty sure that classifies as unclean thing. You realize God gave Manoah and his wife a massive challenge. We've been tasked with raising kids in 21st century America. Like Pastor said before, they have challenges that no generation before them has ever experienced. Our job's not easy. By the way, if your kids are grown up, your job's not done yet. Because you got grandkids and kids that still don't have a clue what we're doing. We just have facial hair now. And that's including the girls sometimes. But here's the thing, we can't give up yet. We can't give up yet. The day you and I get to give up is the day we go to heaven. Because at that point, it's literally in God's hands. But until then, we got a lot of work to do. Powerhouse is coming up in literally three days. Can I ask you to make a vow to God that you're gonna pray harder than you've prayed for our teenagers in a long time? They need it. They need it. And we need them. You realize we're the oldest people in this church. If they don't keep the faith, this church dies. We need them. So we need to pray for them this week, harder than we've prayed for them in a long time. Dear Lord, thank you for everything you do for us. Thank you for loving us.